Hey, so what do you say we finish up chapter 18 today in Luke? What do you say we do that? Sound good? All right, we're going to uh, do that. And this is message 7070 in our series as we're working through uh, the gospel, this kind of epic journey through Luke's gospel. And so hitting a couple of milestones into the 70s in terms of the message numbers and finishing up 18. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, uh, I'm going to read the scripture and then pray for us. And we're doing two sections here. And the first a part of it is a prediction by Jesus, one he's already made uh, about his, his death uh, and burial and resurrection, and then a story that comes right after it uh, with a blind man who gets healed. And all of these events in Luke's gospel are happening in quick succession to each other. They all relate to each other, and uh, we're going to see how that all uh, plays out today. So let's read the scriptures. This is Luke 18, uh, 31 through to the end of the chapter. And taking the twelve, he, Jesus, said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. And as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Let's pray together. Father, I read something like this and it excites me and I, I think about what it would have been like to be there to hear your words and then see you do this miracle and healing this man and it makes me think again how much I don't want to miss anything that you're doing. I don't want to miss what you're doing in my life. I don't want to miss what you're doing in the lives of others around me. Uh, Father, I don't want to miss the hard things that you might want to do in my life and the lessons that would come out of that and I don't want to miss all the good things that you intend for me. I don't want to miss the things that, we're going to, that are going to help me grow and flourish in my Christian life. And I don't want to miss the opportunities that you put in front of me to work with you and have you work in and through me. And so God, help me in this moment. Help each of us in this moment to hear your word and to respond as we ought to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, take a look at the text right there in verse 34. It's kind of where we want to start. It's in the middle of what we were looking at after Jesus makes this prediction about his, he's going to die, he's, he's going to rise again after, um, after being crucified. But notice verse 34, the disciples understood none of these things. I mean, they didn't get it. And there's a sense here in the next line, the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. There's a sense here that God himself was veiling their eyes so that though when we read the words, it sounds super clear and it would have been clear to them, 
that God in some senses was keeping the information from processing in their brains, presumably to kind of make sure that his plan rolled out exactly as it was supposed to roll out without any interference. So the disciples understood none of these things. The meaning of this statement was hidden from them. Again, a third time, Luke says, they did not comprehend the things that were said so that we completely get it, that they didn't get it. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And now their situation, we've said this before, their situation was different from ours because we read that, we see it being so clearly because we have this advantage of hindsight. We're looking back, we have the completed gospel in our hand and so we look back on it, we see how everything exactly played out. So it's a little easier for us to look back and see it all. They hadn't seen Jesus crucified. They hadn't seen his resurrection God, in fact, was keeping all of this uh, from them. And so when I hear Jesus saying all of this about his death and resurrection, it seems all plain and obvious to me, and I know to you too. And yet I find that I too can fail on the very point that the disciples were failing on. Though I understand it cognitively, though I can read the words and I can put it all together and I know what Jesus did for me, Somehow I can miss it experientially. I can miss the application. I can hear the scriptures so plainly. I can read them, hear them preached, hear them taught, grasp it and understand it, but fail to see how it applies to my life, fail to see how I ought to respond to it, hear it, and then walk away without doing it. I can be just like them, missing the point my life not changing in proportion to the things that I'm reading about Jesus. Even with the advantage of having the whole story, I can miss it all. And so the question in front of us for this message is very simple. How can I keep from missing what Jesus is doing? How can I keep from missing what Jesus is doing? And we get some help with that in this passage. And so we'll start with this. Uh, first, anticipate what's to come. Anticipate what's to come. In verse 31, and uh, Luke's gospel is actually set up like a travel narrative. And there are various marker points throughout the gospel that just keep pointing to, pointing to this traveling towards this end point, the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus says that in verse 31, he tells them again, we're going up to Jerusalem. And he states for the third time, some critical events are going to happen, some things related to God's plan, that really the culmination and the climax of God's plan, it's all going to happen in the city of Jerusalem. As eventful as the last three years have been with all of the teaching and all of the healings and everything Jesus has done, the revealing of the kingdom of God through his life and his teaching. As awesome as all of that was, it's going to be nothing as compared to what's going to go on in the period of the Passion as they enter the city of Jerusalem, the culmination and climax of everything that the prophets, everything the Old Testament had predicted. Now, there's something in this right here for us, because I would never want us to settle in here. I would never want us to think that this is it, that we're all comfortable and this is what ministry's about and it's just about having a nice little thing here and that my life is all very comfortable, that I don't need to be challenged or pressed about anything else and we just kind of do this thing until uh, we don't do it anymore. 
I don't want us to think that we've arrived and this is all there is. The goal and purpose of every Christ follower is to glorify God. It's to fulfill the mission that he's given us in this world. It's to be found by Jesus at his coming. It's to be found working for him. It's to be found glorifying him. It's to be found on mission and fulfilling the purpose that he's given to us. Whether you're in the workplace or in your home or at church or with friends or all alone, if Jesus comes back in that moment, he's going to find you committed to the things of his kingdom and eagerly anticipating and watching for that coming so that you're not taken off guard by it. And for the disciples, the, the words that we've used, the culmination and the climax, for them it was Jerusalem. I mean, they didn't fully realize it yet, but they were going to get into that city and it was going to be about Jesus' arrest and the trial and the crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection. Then it would come to this point after the resurrection, after he had taught them and explained some things to them and they started to, to get it and the light bulbs were coming on, then he would ascend in front of them outside the city of Jerusalem. They would stand there and they would watch Jesus ascend up into the clouds and he would be taken out of their sight. In Acts chapter one, they're standing there and they're watching and an angel appears and says, men of Galilee, why are you standing here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you will come again in the same manner. Anticipate that. Live your life in light of that. Fulfill the mission that, that God has given to you to fulfill in this world in anticipation of what's to come. In fact, Jesus himself told them prior to the crucifixion that the end times would come, Luke 21, 27 to 28, and we're going to get to this in a few weeks' time. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. This is an event that is Future for the disciples who are hearing it, but future still for us. We're anticipating the coming of Jesus, and when he comes, the counsel here to us is straighten up, lift your heads, be ready, be watchful, anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. And if we're anticipating that in an active way, if we're readying ourselves for the return of Jesus, then listen, we won't miss a thing of what he's doing. Anticipate what's to come. And we also need to look at this next, a grasp the awfulness of his death. Jesus said of himself, uh, verses uh, 32 in the first part of 33, he speaks about his uh, death here in the third person, but he's obviously speaking about himself, uh, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and then he says five things are gonna happen. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be shamefully treated. He's going to be spat upon. He's going to be flogged. And then they're going to kill him. I mean, Jesus is pointing to the, the brutality of the cross. 
He's telling them so that they wouldn't be surprised by it, but they were, of course, but he's telling them because the brutality of it is critical to the message that we believe and preach. The good news is only good news because there was bad news. The only way we get to the new life is if there is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We're in danger of losing this. Too many preachers, too many Christian authors, too many uh, Christian, music, Christian musicians with sappy lyrics who are sentimentalizing what it means to be a Christian and sanitizing the church and the message that we have. And the point behind it is to appeal to the masses and to be engaged in the culture. But the death of Jesus is an uncomfortable truth that's indispensable to the message we preach, indispensable to our salvation. William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army back in the 1800s, he said this prophetically. I posted this online this past week because he was, uh, it was his birthday, uh, April 10th. He said this, Remember, lived in the 1800s, he said this of the 1900s, or the 20th century, and we're well past all of that now. Here's what Booth said. I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. In essence, what he's saying, to use the wording I used earlier, it's the good news without the bad news, without the tragedy, without the brutality, without the cross. And Jesus would have us remember it. God wants this to be at the forefront of what we believe and what we preach. In fact, the church was given by Jesus two ordinances, just two practices that we're to, uh, that we're to keep. One, of course, is baptism. The other is communion. Baptism is the public testimony of my faith in Christ. And in the waters of baptism, which we practice by immersion, the very picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is there. In baptism, I am buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Baptism points to the death of Christ. The communion table, the second of the ordinances, obviously the bread and the cup, his body given for us, his blood shed for us, the only two things that we're commanded to do in terms of religious rites, baptism and communion, both point to his death. Jesus points us to the awfulness of his death so that we won't miss a thing in what we believe, in what we preach, and in how we live. But it's not just the awfulness of his death. We also celebrate, notice now, the awesomeness, the awesomeness of his resurrection. Verse 33 ends, and on the third day, he will rise. Now, you can't separate these two events, of course. Uh, they're, they're really one event, 
Our sins are atoned for, covered, forgiven by his death and new life and rebirth in Christ is ours by the power of the resurrection. We got together a few weeks ago to celebrate Easter, the annual celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we pull out all the stops, the confetti cannons, the, the shouting, the music, the lights, everything contributing to this celebration that we want to bring to the fact that our Savior was raised from the dead. And it's awesome that we do that once a year. But I don't know if you know this from history or if you've ever wondered why we as the church worship on Sundays, because Christianity, of course, is the fulfillment of Judaism. We're born out of Judaism. The Jews, of course, would gather together for worship on the Sabbath, on Saturday, the seventh day, the day of rest. Christians in the first century very quickly abandoned that and began uh, gathering together on what they called the Lord's Day or the first day of the week, Sunday. Have you ever wondered why that is? Historically, it's because it was the day of the resurrection, they didn't want to just celebrate the resurrection once a year. They wanted to celebrate the resurrection every week, every Sunday, as a reminder of what Christ had done. They wanted to celebrate the awesomeness of the resurrection. And really, this is what should fire us up personally. It should compel every one of our ministries, new life in Christ. The awesomeness of his resurrection is the reason why we exist. And it's what we preach and impart in all of our ministries. It's what's happening in Harvest Kids right now. It's what happens in Awana on Wednesday nights. It's what happens in Harvest Youth. It's what happens in our young adults, in our small groups. It's the imparting of new life. Not just nice teachings, not just a, a good way to live. It's new life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I even think about our biblical soul care ministry, which is our counseling ministry, if you want to use that word, and Pastor Roger and his team who pour so much into that. But I, I need you to know, we, we're not, we don't have a counseling ministry with a particular philosophy or approach to counseling. We don't have a counseling strategy, if you will. What we have in biblical soul care is this. I'll give you two verses. 1 Corinthians 1.23. In biblical soul care, we preach Christ crucified. And Philippians 3.10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. That's our biblical soul care strategy. Preach Christ crucified, the power of the resurrection that I can know in my own life. That's what we bring to the table. For every sin, for every sorrow, for all our struggles, the solution is Jesus Christ. And nothing in this world should stir us or bring us joy or excite us or compel us or challenge us like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what we celebrate, amen? That's what we celebrate. All right, here's... Uh, Here's a fourth way. Did you notice there's seven points this morning? Did you notice that? Seven points. We're on number four. Hang in. We can do this. See the desperate need around you. It's remarkable to me that Jesus always managed to see the needs around him, even when people were standing between him and the needs, trying to keep him from actually seeing them. 
A couple of weeks ago, in the earlier part of uh, chapter 18, we saw these, these parents who were bringing infants, and they wanted Jesus to bless them. And the disciples themselves, Jesus' own disciples, got between the moms and, the, and Jesus because they felt like the children weren't worthy of Jesus' time. And now we have this blind man in verses 35 and 37. He's, he's a beggar. He's blind, so he can't work. The only means of supporting himself is that he would stand beside the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. They're in Jericho, and, and it's a busy thoroughfare that goes up into the mountains to, to the city of Jerusalem. And he sits there, and he begs to make a life for himself. Then he hears this crowd coming his way, and he asks, who is this? It's Jesus of Nazareth. And then he calls out, notice in verse 38, Jesus Son of David, have mercy on me. Now listen, this is very, very, very unique that someone called Jesus the son of David. This blind man had heard Jesus. He heard him preach. He knew that the things he was saying and doing were messianic. And so he calls him this Jesus from Nazareth. He calls him the son of David because he has this hope inside of him that this is the Messiah. So he calls out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But then the crowd who's between him and Jesus, they're all like, shut up, buddy. You're just a blind guy. You're just a beggar. Jesus doesn't have time for you. It's more important people who are deserving of Jesus' time. Well, he was undaunted. Right at the beginning of chapter 18, you'll remember this widow, right? She keeps going to the judge. She has this justice issue that she's trying to get solved, and she keeps coming, and the judge keeps refusing to hear her, and she just keeps coming. She's persistent. And I think about that widow when I see this blind man who just goes, yeah, forget it. And he calls out even louder, son of David, have mercy on me. Because he had a need, a deep and desperate need. He was blind and had to beg. And he's a marker for all the desperate needs that are around us. So many desperate needs around us. And I think we can categorize them into, into three categories. Nothing... New or earth-shattering here, you might jot these down. The desperate needs around us can fall into, first of all, physical and material needs. Physical and material needs. People are hungry who need to be fed. They're injured and sick who need care and healing. The poor need a clothing. The homeless need shelter. We would put all of that on, on the level of desperate needs. Sometimes the needs are lesser than that, maybe moderate needs that we can still care for one another. Someone is sick for a season. Someone had surgery. They could use a meal, someone to cut their grass or shovel their driveway or care for their kids. We can meet those needs, desperate or not. A second category would be mental and emotional needs. And I would include in this because our mental health and our emotional needs are so tied to relationship. I would just put relational needs here as well. We all need friendships. We all need encouragement. We all need kind words uh, to be spoken to us and for people to come alongside us and support us. 
We need to be taught. We need to be stimulated intellectually. We have mental and emotional needs. And then uh, the third category, of course, would be spiritual needs. Spiritual needs. Everyone, everyone needs the emptiness inside of them, the void that they feel apart from God. They need that filled. Everyone does. Everyone needs to meet Jesus Christ. Everyone needs to have their sin forgiven and to be assured of eternity with him for everyone, for, forever. That's everyone who needs that. So physical, material, mental, emotional, relational, spiritual needs, all of these needs. Some of us have some of those needs. All of us have the spiritual need. And really it comes down to, do I have a sense of belonging? I can try to find it in relationships down here, but I know that ultimately that is going to be satisfied when I embrace the love of my heavenly father and hear the words from him, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I know I belong to him and I don't need to belong to anything else. So many people struggle with the sense, the desperate need they have is to figure out why I'm here and what my purpose in life is. And Jesus Christ fulfills that no matter who you are, young or old, male or female, infirm or healthy. Your purpose in life is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and to fulfill the mission he gave us in this world, which is to make disciples, tell people about Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. That's your mission. Everything else in your life fits in and under that. And then the need that we all have to be loved. I mean, again, you're blessed and privileged if you have some people here around you and in your life who love you. But ultimately, all we really need is the love of Jesus Christ. It is an everlasting life. It, it, it never fails. He never fails. Now, I've stirred it up for some of us here. Obviously, we have all of these needs. All of us have something and multiple of these needs. They're all around us and everyone needs Jesus Christ. And if you're a follower of Christ here today, it's really on you to have figured out most, if not all of that, or be figuring it out, and then to look around you to see who are the blind people in my life. Who are those with the desperate needs that I need to reach? And then we need to respond in the way Jesus responded. And nobody can do it all. Jesus didn't even do it all. He didn't heal everybody. He didn't feed everybody. He didn't meet every need. He met lots, but not everyone. Not everybody can do, not, not anyone. Uh, no one can do it all. But listen, everyone can do something. And if you take a pass on seeing the needs and seeking to meet them in Jesus' name, then you're really no better than the crowd who stood between Jesus and the blind man. They almost missed out on the awesome thing that Jesus was about to do. Don't miss out. Don't miss what Jesus is doing. The healing that he wants to bring. All right, number five, pray to the God who hears and answers. 
Prayer is such an essential part of the Christian life. It's a conversation between us and the Father. And so if we're really talking about not missing anything, it makes sense that we would be in conversation with God so that we are even aware of the things that he's doing and the things that are going on in our own lives that we want to bring to him. And there's no doubt that prayer is a mystery and some of us tune out right at this very moment because we struggle so very much with the matter of prayer. And please understand that when it comes to prayer, it's more about the relationship than the requests. And that's where we get hung up, just praying requests, forgetting that really it's just about us communing with God. And it may even seem unnecessary to many of us who are wired up in a certain way to be doers. What does prayer profit? Why do I need to do it? What difference does it make? And yet it's indispensable, indispensable to those who don't want to miss what God is doing. So pray to the God who hears and answers. Now, you might be looking at the text going, I don't see any prayer going on here, really. And yet, in fact, there is prayer in the sense that, just work with me for a moment, Jesus is God. This blind man is coming to him with a need, and he's talking to Jesus and Jesus is talking to him, and even though in that moment it just seems like a person-on-person -person conversation, for me, from my perspective, that looks like prayer. He's speaking to God. In fact, I know it would enhance my prayer life if Jesus would just show up once a day and we could just talk face-to-face. -face. Don't you think that would enhance your prayer life? I mean, I think that would make it awesome. So I'm kind of jealous of this blind man in that sense. And so I'm seeing this as prayer. So notice verses 40 and 41. Jesus stopped. He commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Now I want you to imagine in prayer this week that God is saying that to you just before you begin praying. God is saying to you, what do you want me to do for you? What an awesome question. God is literally asking that of us. You're going to come and talk to him. What do you, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man replied, as, as we would pray to our heavenly father, the blind man replies, Lord, let me recover my sight. Because that was his desperate need. And in fact, if that could be healed, the begging is going to take care of itself. This is you and me praying. God, give me direction on this decision. Father, meet this particular need. Lord, open up a door for employment. God, tell us whether it should be this or this. This is us praying our need to God. Now at this point, the point of asking, the blind man has no idea if it's possible. He has no idea if Jesus can do it. He has no idea if it's God's will. Write this down. But he asks. He doesn't know if it's going to play out, right? But he asks. He brings his request to the Lord. And because he did, he didn't miss out on the thing that Jesus was about to do. If you don't pray, if you don't take it to God, if you're not laying your request before him, you might miss out. I wonder, I wonder what we miss out on because we don't pray. I wonder if there's more souls 
people whom we love who would come to Christ if we would pray for them. I wonder how many more marriages would be restored and would be stronger today if we prayed for them. I wonder how many more healings we might see if we would pray in faith for them. I wonder how many more addictions would be overcome if we prayed for that. James 4.2, help me with this verse. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, when God does answer, we see him work. We don't miss out on his great plan for us. And we experience, look at this next, we experience the healing he offers. I mean, something super cool happens, obviously, in verse 42. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. In fact, in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, Jesus just says to him, see. It's a command, one word, to make the point. And immediately he saw And then he adds, how did this happen? He adds, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Now, I want to look at that word well for a second. If you're carrying the English Standard Version, you see the word well. You could kind of circle that word and make a note about it. If you're carrying the New International, the NIV, um, the word healed is there. And if you're old school carrying the uh, KJV, the King James Version, you're going to see that um, your faith has saved saved thee. Okay, that's what you see um, there. And uh, this is a, how many people liked English class in high school? How many people liked English class? Six, seven people maybe liked English class. So this is, maybe you'll remember this phrase, this is a double entendre. It's a double entendre. And you see the struggle that the various translations are have. You have everything from wellness to healing to salvation to being saved And really, there are two meanings intended. That's the double entendre. Jesus, when he says this, wants us to hear two very different things that are going on. In fact, the Greek word sozo um, means to heal, make well, make whole, make safe, or to save. Okay, it has a broad range of meanings. That's the verb form of it. And the uh, noun form of it uh, is the word soteria, um, salvation. Uh, Luke 19.9, which is the next passage we'll be looking at, uh, Jesus says, today, salvation, soteria, healing, wellness, wholeness has come to this house. Now, in the case of the blind man, the double entendre is this, he is both healed physically and spiritually saved in this moment. Both of those things are happening to him at the same time in this encounter with Jesus Christ. Both are the result, as Jesus said, of his faith, his belief. Now, having said that, not everyone gets this. A person in in having an encounter with Jesus Christ and coming to faith in him, gaining the salvation, the healing, the spiritual healing, does not necessarily get healing of the physical thing that might have driven them to the point of considering Christ. So for this man, it was that he was a blind beggar. He did get the physical healing, but some people are driven because their marriage is a disaster and their marriage does not get healed, but they get Christ. The physical healing doesn't happen, or in that case, the relational healing, but the spiritual healing did. 
Some people come with physical maladies and, and, and afflictions that are gripping them. And they might find Jesus, but they might not be healed of the physical condition that they're facing. Not everyone gets both. And you can see, of course, that one of those things is temporal anyways. And one of them is very much eternal and is preferred. It's much preferable that someone would be saved spiritually, healed spiritually, and have the forgiveness of their sins and eternity before them than maybe that they should be healed physically. Even the blind man, after receiving his sight, eventually he died. But he went to be with Jesus because he was healed spiritually. Not everyone gets the double healing. But all may receive the spiritual healing. And I was thinking about this in terms of the tragedy that has happened over the last week um, in Humboldt, Saskatchewan. I don't want to overplay that or exploit that at all. We've been praying, um, thinking about that as a, as a church family, as staff, we've been thinking about it. The flags are at half staff in our parking lot on our flagpoles because we want to remember that and honor that. But there are two very distinct ways of praying for this. For sure, we need to be praying for uh, those who have lost loved ones, for healing of their emotions, that, that their grief would not uh, grip them and consume them, that they would eventually in time overcome that. We should be praying for the emotional scarring that many will carry, including first responders who are on the scene. We should uh, pray for sure for those who are recovering in hospital, that they would come to full recovery and overcome their injuries. We, we could pray for Humboldt, for the province of Saskatchewan, that there would be a healing in those places and in fact pray that they would emerge stronger as a result of this tragedy. So pray for all of those things, but you'll agree with me that those all cover physical, material, emotional, mental, relational healing and all of it is temporal. The greater healing that we should be praying for as well is the spiritual healing. And if you follow the story at all, you already know that the coach of the team was a passionate follower of Jesus Christ and he was now with the Lord. And he left behind a wife and two small children. Their testimony was so strong and it was a part of what that team was about and the values of what were embedded into that team. The team's chaplain, the pastor of a church in Humboldt, spoke at the public vigil where only two people spoke. He spoke for 18 minutes. A man who loves God's word and passionate about the things of Christ, and he was unapologetic. At that public vigil, no politician was allowed to speak. But this man stood up and spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ as being the only hope. He kept saying, where was Jesus? He's right there. He's right with us. He's guiding us through this. And we need to be praying that there is a spiritual healing that happens in the lives of many, many, not just the hundreds who are in that arena to hear that message, but the literally hundreds of thousands of people around the world who've been tuning in to watch the story. We want to see what Jesus is doing. We don't want to miss any of it. We don't want to be like these disciples, again, verse 34, who understood none of these things. The meaning was hidden from, they didn't comprehend it. 
We want to see Jesus at work. We want to not miss any of it. And again, I kind of want to give them a pass because these disciples were very much reflective of the culture that they were in, the Jewish people and their understanding of the Messiah. They had a picture of their Messiah that Jesus just didn't match. It didn't fit their expectation. They anticipated a Messiah for sure, but they were waiting for a human conquering king. In essence, they were looking for a material, a physical healing and salvation. They were looking for someone who was going to come in and, and kick out the Romans and reestablish the Davidic throne in Jerusalem and reestablish Israel and its influence in the world. They weren't looking for a Messiah who claimed to be God. They weren't looking for a Messiah who was speaking of a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual one. They weren't looking for a Messiah who cared anything about blind men or children, but one who was about power. They expected a warrior. And it isn't that their vision was wrong. It's just that they were missing the middle part. They wanted the conquering king, but they, they didn't even read their own prophecies right, so they missed the fact that he also needed to be a suffering savior before he could be the conquering king. They wanted the victory before it was won. They failed to understand what their own prophets had written. You see, this message is about not missing the thing that God is doing. Don't miss the benefit, even in your own life, of the, of the hard thing, of the challenges that God allows and puts into your life where the maximum amount of growth can happen, where we can know our Lord Jesus in a greater way. The hard thing that God wants to do in your life, the middle part, in advance of the glory that he intends to reveal in you at the end of the age. All right, one more. How can I keep from missing what Jesus is doing? Give him praise and glory. Give him praise and glory. Exalt his great name. Don't ever stop. Sing to him and speak of him and honor him with the way you live your life. Let your earthly life of praise roll right into your eternal life of praise. Verse 43, and immediately the blind man recovered his sight. Physical, material healing. And followed Jesus. Spiritual healing, salvation. Glorifying God. And all the people, all the people, even the ones who tried to prevent the blind man from seeing Jesus in the first place, all the people gave praise to God. Jesus let them in on what he was doing. He was gracious enough to let them see it all and, and so that he wouldn't miss a thing. And as long as you're spending your life in worship of Christ, you will not miss what God is doing. I guarantee it. 
I mean, worship, when you think about it, worship is to attribute worth and value to whatever the object of your worship is. It can be a person, it can be a thing, it can be a pursuit. All these small g gods, these idols that we have in our life. To worship is to attribute worth and value to the object of your worship. Let that be Jesus Christ. If your eyes are on him, then the full impact of who he is and of his kingdom will flow into your life. So praise and worship him and give him glory and live for him. And you won't miss a thing. of what he wants to do in you and in your family and the people around you and in this church and in this city and county. I believe that we can have such a significant impact in this area for Jesus Christ. Our city needs it. Our county needs it. Our province needs it. This country needs it. This world needs it. And if we will glorify Jesus Christ with our lives, we will see the gospel making a difference and impact in the lives of people we love. Don't miss what Jesus is doing. Let's pray. Father, I'm uh, so very grateful um, again for your word and how it pierces our hearts and our minds. It hits us right where we need to be hit, where our needs are, where we need to be challenged. It exposes the areas of rebellion in our lives. And Father, for these things where we have not prayed, where we have not worshipped you, where we have not been watching for your return, where we have not given ourselves to the things of this kingdom, Father, we would repent of that right now and to ask your forgiveness. And Father, stir this up in us. Father, we know you're doing a lot. We want to be able to see it, not miss it, and even be a part of it. That we would please you and glorify you in this. And we pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.